0: Now we come to chapter 2, and when we come here to chapter 2, we come to the discouragement of the people and the encouragement of the Lord, and that's in the first nine verses. Now this took place on October the 21st, 520. Now will you notice this, and this is the third message and it's dated here, verse 1 of chapter 2 of Haggai, in the seventh month. You see, the other took place in the sixth month. In the one and twentieth day of the month came the word of the Lord by the prophet Haggai, saying, now they had been working a month. they spent about 24 days getting organized, probably getting the foundation down. And now for a month, the temple is beginning to go up. And there's great enthusiasm about all of this. God has encouraged them. God says, I'm with you. Now we come to the second item of discouragement. Now, will you notice what God says here in verse 2? Speak now to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehoshadak, the high priest and to the residue of the people saying. Now, this is a message that is directed now to the same group of people that God had encouraged in the last chapter. Same leaders and the same people. Now, we come to the second hurdle that Haggai had to clear as the prophet. Now, you must remember all the time Zechariah is prophesying along with him, but we'll get to Zechariah next time, or that is, the next prophet we take up. Now, here was the problem, and will you notice it? He says, verse 3 now of the second chapter of Haggai, "...who is left among you that saw this house in its first glory, and how do you see it now? It's not in your eyes in comparison with it as nothing." In other words, this was the thing that was happening. You see, many of those who had returned from the Babylonian captivity, they remembered, though many of them had been very young at the time of the captivity, they could remember the beauty and the richness of Solomon's temple. Now, in comparison, this little temple they're putting up, sort of like a shotgun house. Just a little long, what would be called a long house. And in comparison, this temple here, it looked like a tenant farmer's barn in Georgia. Compared to the richness of the Temple of Solomon, that temple, by the way, it was ornate. It was rich in every detail. And the thing about it is, This temple here just didn't seem to measure up at all. Now, will you notice that Solomon's temple had not really been a great temple? That is, it had not been a large temple by any means. And I suppose that the people here that could remember the other one They could remember it in all of its beauty. They could remember the richness of it, how ornate it was, and the jewels that had been put in it, the gold that had been put in it, and the silver. Actually, the Temple of Solomon, it's been variously estimated how much wealth really went into the construction of it. And you can get figures anywhere from five million 20 million dollars well friends that's quite a difference of course and it certainly is not like our national debt by any means it's not that much but in that day believe me this was quite a bit of wealth whether it's five or 20 million wouldn't make any difference that temple was a jewel box it was a thing of beauty Now, the thing that had happened was simply this that as this temple went up, and you notice the date that he gave this message, it was the seventh month in the one and twentieth day of the month. Now, that's quite interesting. If you check into that, if you go over to Leviticus, the 23rd chapter, and look at the feast days, you will find out that this was the seventh day of the Feast of Tabernacles. In other words, the final feast of ingathering for the year. And I'm of the opinion that the people had pressed forward in order to get the temple as far along as possible in order to use it for the celebration of the Feast of Tabernacles. And this building never was, even when it was completed, never was as ornate as Solomon's. And when many of the old-timers came in, there was the absence of the jewels and of the silver and gold. We're going to see that in this chapter here, that it lacked all of that beauty and all of that wealth that characterized Solomon's temple. So the thing that happened when the people went, apparently, to celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles... And this is just a construction that's just hurriedly now fixed so it can be used. And you know, any kind of a building, whether it's a house or a great office building, before it's completed, it sure doesn't look good. It's not impressive, you see. You have to wait until the building is finished to appreciate it. And this building was not finished. But actually, there was no comparison between this building and Solomon's temple. So there was mingled and mixed reaction to it. In fact, I'm going back to the book of Ezra. And I'd like to read there some verses from the book of Ezra that I think will help us. If you have your Bible, maybe you'd like to go back with us to the third chapter of the book of Ezra. And when we get back there, we are going to turn to... The third chapter, and I think I'll go back and begin reading at verse 8 here. Now, listen to this. Now, in the second year of their coming into the house of God at Jerusalem, in the second month began Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Joshua, the son of Josedach, and the remnant of their brethren, the priests and the Levites, and all they that were come out of the captivity under Jerusalem, and appointed the Levites from twenty years old and upward, and set forward the work of the house of the Lord. Then took Joshua with his sons and his brethren, Cadmiel and his sons, the sons of Judah, together to set forward the workmen in the house of God, the sons of Henadad with their sons and their brethren, the Levites. And when the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, they set the priests in their apparel with trumpets, and the Levites, the son of Asaph, with cymbals to praise the Lord after the ordinance of David, king of Israel. And they sang together by chorus in praising and giving thanks unto the Lord, because he's good for his mercy endureth forever toward Israel. And all the people shouted with a great shout when they praised the Lord, because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. So you see, they had to celebrate it with just the foundation and maybe a few uprights there. Now will you notice, verse 12, but many of the priests and Levites and chief of the fathers who were ancient men, that is, they were old men, that had seen the first house. When the foundation of this house was laid before the eyes, they wept with a loud voice, and many shouted aloud for joy, so that the people could not discern the noise of the shout of joy from the noise of the weeping of the people. For the people shouted with a loud shout, and the noise was heard afar off. Well, but amidst all the shout of joy, there was also this other shout. It wasn't a shout. It was a weeping and a howling because they were making a comparison between the two. They said, look, this little temple that you're putting up here, it doesn't amount to a row of beans or a hill of beans. It doesn't amount to anything at all. It's so little. And inconsequential in comparison to the Temple of Solomon. And you know, if you want to dampen a project, that's all you have to do is to say, well, boys, you may think it's great, but you should have seen the original or back in the good old days. And that used to be the thing I heard as a boy, the good old days. Then when I got older, I heard people talking about the good old days when I was a boy. I don't remember any good old days when I was a boy. May I say to you, those were hard, difficult days then. I remember that my first little church I served down in Georgia. If you ever come to my study here, I'll show you a picture of it. I'm looking at it right now. By that city there now, oh, they have a brick church now. But this was a little white structure at least it was white one time we finally painted that and it's on a red clay hill down there in georgia my first year there as a student pastor we had a meeting during the summer i preached a series of evangelistic messages on the book of revelation i haven't been able to do that since then but i did it then and god bless we had many young people that were saved and that last Sunday night, in the warmth of that Georgia evening, we sat out on the steps, and I'm looking at him here. And we were talking, all of us young folk, of how wonderful a meeting had been. And then there was an old boy there, he had whiskers, looked like Methuselah. He said, well, now you've had a pretty good meeting, young man. But he says, I remember, oh, brother, when they start that, you're headed for the toboggan, and you're going down the hill. And he took us for the ride down the hill. He said, now, when I was a young man, we really had a meeting here. And then he began to tell us about the meeting. And ours really looked pretty small that we had had compared to his. But I understand he exaggerated just a little. May I say to you, this was discouragement. How will Haggai overcome this? Or better, how will God overcome it? Now, will you notice how God is going to meet this situation. How is he going to answer it? He very frankly faces it. Listen to what God has to say. Verse 4, "...yet now be strong, O Zerubbabel, saith the Lord, and be strong, O Joshua, the son of Jehoshadak, the high priest, and be strong, all ye people of the land, saith the Lord, and..." Work, for I am with you, saith the Lord of hosts. May I say to you, this is quite wonderful. God's challenge was twofold here. He says it three times, be strong. Be strong, he says, to the civil ruler. Be strong, he says, to the religious ruler. He now speaks to the people, and he has something new for them. No. Same thing, be strong, be strong. And that was a very wonderful thing to say to them. Very simple, of course, but frankly, very important. You remember, this is something that Paul said to the Ephesians. You and I today live in a big bad world. What's our encouragement today? God's work in so many places seems so small, doesn't seem to amount to very much. What is the answer to it? Well, here's God's answer. Uh, Ephesians 6, verse 10, Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. That's the important thing. If you can recognize you can't do anything, but God can do a great deal and be strong in the Lord. Well, how wonderful that is. And may I say to you, that is something we find over in the 11th chapter of Hebrews, verse 34. It says there that they quenched the violence of fire, escaped the edge of the sword. Out of weakness were made strong. And doesn't God say he chooses the weak things of this world? God doesn't choose these big Highly ornate buildings today, these great big mausoleums that have a steeple on top of them. Nothing very great's happening in those places today, friends. I'll tell you where the place is just jumping today. It's out in the suburban areas or in actually a small place where the church is just absolutely packed out. Now, I know what I'm talking about when I mention this. I've had the privilege of going across this country several times, and I have been abroad also. Why, I went into a great church in London, England. At one time, it was filled with several thousand people three times a week regularly. Well, the Sunday night I was there, there weren't 200 people there. May I say to you, my, that great, big, imposing building is not very impressive anymore with its very formidable name. Well, may I say to you, that's true in this country today. I have been in some of these great churches. By the amount of lumber you can see there that's in pews and in benches. Nobody's in them. I go out yonder today to some of these small churches, and they are packed to the door. And they're having two and three services a day. I've been in several churches now where they have three morning services. Somebody says, well, why don't you go back there? Because my friend, three services in the morning kills me. But these young preachers are able to do it, apparently. So may I say to you that we're to be strong in the Lord and he not only said that one time or two times, but Paul writing to a young preacher in Second Timothy, the second chapter. I'd like to read that. He says in chapter 2, verse 1 of Second Timothy. Now, this is his swan song and is his final message to this young preacher. Thou therefore, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. You're God's son now. He was a spiritual son, you see, of Paul. And Paul says, you are a son of God. Be strong now. And what a word of encouragement that should be. Somebody says, well, my work is so small. My little group is so small that I don't think it amounts to very much. May I say to you, if that's what you think, it's the devil that's talking to you. It's God that, very frankly, is the one that's going to put the measuring rod down on it and determine who's great and who's not. And there are a whole lot of straw stacks that are being built today, and they're very impressive. I've always been afraid that I have built a big straw stack. And somebody says, yes, but some gold in it. But my friend, have you ever tried to find a needle in a straw stack? How would you find a little piece of gold that's the same color as a straw? May I say to you, friends, that it's not a matter of the size of the work to begin with. God makes it very clear that that's not the important thing. What he's saying to you and me today is, Watch ye, stand fast in the faith, quit you like men, be strong. That's First Corinthians 16 13, and that was a bunch of babies over there in Corinth. And Paul says, get out of the crib. Get out of your high chair and grow up. Be strong in the Lord. Oh, how we need that sort of thing today in God's work, friends. And again, he wasn't through with the Corinthians. When he wrote the second epistle, he says to them in 2 Corinthians ten four, for the weapons of our warfare are not carnal but they're mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds. It was my privilege to be pastor in downtown Los Angeles and to have succeeded some great men that I always respected them. I may not approve of everything they did, but I sure had great respect for those men. They were great preachers. And Dr. Tari had been the founder of that church. And so I never went in that pulpit, never walked in that pulpit. But when we left the radio room to come out on the platform with the staff, I always looked to God and would say to him, Lord, I am unable. I'm insufficient. And who is sufficient for this task? And I call on you today. and May I say to you, that I'm thanking God that out of weakness, he can make you strong. And he says here, the weapons of our warfare are not carnal. They're mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds. And I've told God many a time, I said, Lord, if anything happens here today, you will have to do it because you and I know that this poor boy can't do it at all. And he goes on to say, here to the Corinthians, verse 5, He says, casting down imaginations and every high thing that exalteth itself against the knowledge of God and bringing into captivity every thought to the obedience of Christ and having in readiness to revenge all disobedience when your obedience is fulfilled. In other words, make very sure you're being obedient unto God and it doesn't make any difference how large the work is or how small the work is. It's something that We need to remember, be strong. God says, sure, this temple is not as impressive as the other temple was. God says, I know that, but be strong. That is my challenge to you. And he said it three times, and then he said something else, and work, and work. Just keep at the job. Let God be the one to determine who's doing the greatest work. I think when you and I get up there, We're going to find out that there may have been some people that were greater in Luther's day than Luther, and in Wesley's day, greater than Wesley, and greater than Billy Sunday in Billy Sunday's day, Billy Graham in Billy Graham's day, or even Vernon McGee. I used to tell the staff, I said, you know, someday when we stand before God, we may call some woman, and he'll say, this woman was a member of the Church of the Open Door while Dr. McGee was pastor of that church. Only thing, I don't think he'd call me doctor. But he'll say, I want to reward her. She is the most honored one. And I'll nudge members of the staff. i say, did you all know her? I didn't. And they'd say, no, we never heard of her. She's one of those unknown members. All she had was just one little boy. Her husband deserted her. She raised him. He went to the mission field. And my, what a work he did. And she was faithful. She didn't have the opportunity of speaking to thousands, but she sure had the opportunity of speaking to one. And that's all God asked her to do. May I say to you, I think we're going to get our eyes open someday when we stand in this presence. He says... Be strong and work. Be faithful at the task that God has called you to. And then here is the glorious word of encouragement, and it's this, For I am with you, saith the Lord of hosts. Now, we have a great deal more in this chapter to deal with, and especially in this particular section here. And I'm inclined to want to move on, but no. I want to stay with this for just a moment. God says, for I am with you, saith the Lord of hosts. Now, the fact of the matter is, the Shekinah glory had departed from the temple sometime before the destruction of the temple. Now, I've always taken the position that it took place during the reign of Manasseh. That man was a sinner and a ruler, and during his reign... That nation went lower than it ever had gone before. And if the Shekinah glory didn't leave during his reign, i would be very frank with you, I can't figure out any other time after that that he'd be inclined to leave. I think he left during the reign of Manasseh. Now, they had this very ornate temple, boards covered with gold, all of it in display, and the silver. All of that, how beautiful it must have been. You know that on that place today is the Mosque of Omar. And it has a dome that is painted gold. Now, I've been told that that's gold leaf. I don't know. It may or may not be. I'm rather skeptical about those things. But it could be, of course. But I have looked at that from the Mount of Olives. I've looked at it from Zion. Zion. I've looked at it from the tower of that Lutheran church. I've looked at it from the hotel windows. And I want to say how it shines. And as I've looked at that pagan mosque, I've thought of how Solomon's temple must have looked in the bright sunlight of that almost desert air. How beautiful it must have been. And in comparison to what they're looking at now, Why, actually, it's no comparison at all. But friends, the Shekinah glory was gone. It wasn't there anymore. And this house that's being put up, this is the thing I want to deal with next time, is that actually Zerubbabel's temple that is being rebuilt here now was torn down by Herod. And then Herod began to build that beautiful temple that was there in Christ's day, but never completed. In 70 A.D., Titus destroyed it. And the Lord always looked at that as one house. Not three houses, but one house. And so he's going to talk about that a little later. But actually, the house they're putting up is in line with the house that will be there when the Lord Jesus comes and walks into that temple and cleanses it. Now, will you look at that for just a moment? He was the Shekinah glory. (laughs) He was God manifest in the flesh. John says we beheld his glory, but he was veiled in human flesh, and he walked into that temple not one time, but many times. The Lord says to these people, people, yes, it's not much, but I'm with you. And that's better than having a temple and God not being there. And my friend, that's the contrast between that big church today with empty seats, nothing in the world but a mausoleum, cold and indifferent and dead, and a little church around the corner that's got a young man teaching the Word of God. I say to you today that we need to get a perspective of what is real and what is not real, and what God is blessing and what God is not blessing. This is a marvelous section here. We'll pick right up there next time. And until then, may God richly bless you, my beloved. Now today we come to the fifth verse of the second chapter of Haggai. And you will recall that the people were greatly disturbed. That is, the people who had seen the first temple, they saw this second temple, and it didn't seem to be very impressive, and there was no comparison. And God encouraged them. Remember, he said to them, "...be strong and work." And then he said, "...I'm with you." And now in verse 5... He continues along this same line. He says, according to the word that I covenanted with you when ye came out of Egypt, so my spirit remaineth among you, fear not. In other words, though the Shekinah glory had departed during the time of the first temple, and we suggested last time it might be during the reign of Manasseh, that is, the last days of that old temple. It was just nothing in the world but a very ornate building that was deserted of the presence of God. Now God says to them, "...My spirit is still with you, though this new building may not be impressive. My spirit is among you, I should say, are with you. It doesn't make any difference how you translate it here." My Spirit remaineth among you, fear not. Now, this, of course, reveals to us the difference between the Old Testament and New Testament as to the ministry of the Holy Spirit. He was among the people in that day. He is in believers today. He certainly changed position. That is one of the wonderful benefits of the believer in Christ. If they had no reason to fear, certainly the child of God should not fear. Now, he continues on in verse 6, For thus saith the Lord of hosts, yet once, it's a little while, and I will shake the heavens, and the earth, and the sea, and the dry land. Now, verse 7, And I will shake all nations, and the desire of all nations shall come, And I will fill this house with glory, saith the Lord of hosts. Now, I think that first of all, we need to recognize that what God is doing here is getting their minds and hearts and eyes off of that which is local, that which is very limited, and get their eyes fixed on God's program for these people, that is, Out yonder in the future, extending all the way into the millennium. And that is very important to see, because it's so easy for us to get the wrong perspective of the Christian life. We get our nose pressed right up to the window of the present, and we don't see anything else. As someone has put it, you can put a dime over your eye and blot out the sun. Well, that dime is like the present. It blots out God's plan and purpose for our lives. Don't be discouraged because present circumstances and present things are not working out for you. Recognize that for the child of God, that all things work together for good. That is a good that's off yonder in the distance. Now, he says here, He intends to shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land. In other words, God intends to move in judgment. And we're going to see before we finish this little book. He's moving forward and speaking of the great tribulation, which is the day of the Lord, and the coming of Christ to the earth, which is part of the day of the Lord, and the setting up of the millennial temple. Now, actually, what you have here is something I think very important for us to see. And he says, I will fill this house with glory, saith the Lord of hosts. Now, the way that the Lord looked at it was that there was first Solomon's temple, that was Zerubbabel's temple, and then Zerubbabel's temple was torn down by Herod, and then that was built then the temple that was called Herod's Temple. And Herod's Temple was part of the second temple, by the way. Now, into that temple came the Lord Jesus Christ. And may I say the glory was there, although in human flesh. Then after that, the temple was destroyed, even before it was finished in 70 A.D. by Titus Now, on that spot, there's been built no temple from that day to this. Actually, on that spot is the Mosque of Omar today. And I tell you, the Islamic world would never permit that to be removed because that's either the second or third holiest spot in the world of Islam. Mohammedanism pays a great deal of attention to that spot there. But there will be built later the temple that we designate the great tribulation temple. And then after that, there will be a millennial temple that will be built there. Now, when God looks at it, he sees only one house. It's a series of houses, but he looks at it as one house, one temple. And therefore, he says, the day is coming when this house, he says, will be filled with glory saith the Lord of hosts, and he's going to shake all nations. I tell you, today it's very difficult to believe they could be more shaken than they have been in the past, well, in this century for that matter. This century was practically ushered in by the First World War. That was rather world-shaking. And then there have been quite a few earth-shaking events since then, a worldwide depression world war ii and then since then there have been such tremendous things that have happened including the oil situation the energy shortage it's really shaken all nations but that's nothing that is in my judgment compared to the shaking that is coming in the future and god says i'm going to fill this house with glory And I believe that the Shekinah glory will come with Christ when he returns to the earth. I believe that is the interpretation of his statement in the Olivet Discourse when he says, "...then shall be seen the sign of the Son of Man in heaven." And then immediately after that, in the next verse, he speaks of the glory of the Lord. Well, I think that it will again be seen there in the temple... We call it the Great Tribulation Temple. But I want to tell you, when he comes and occupies that, it won't be a Great Tribulation Temple that's in rebellion against him with an image that's put in it of the Antichrist, but he himself will be present there. Now, he says, and I will shake all nations, and the desire of all nations shall come. Now, the... Commentators from the very beginning, in fact, the early church fathers, they interpreted the desire of all nations to be Christ. Well, very frankly, that disturbed me when I began as a young preacher, because to tell the truth, I never could think that Christ is the desire of all nations. Now, I recognize that there are those that look to the coming of Christ, and they try to say it's the longing of all nations for a deliverer. Well, that may be true, that the world would like a deliverer, but who are they going to accept when he comes? Well, will be Antichrist. Antichrist is the world's Messiah, the world's Savior, and they will accept him when he comes. I do not think that there's any desire for the Lord Jesus Christ Now, I think this passage makes it very clear what he's talking about. I think if we just keep reading, and that is the difficulty, I think, in interpretation today. It's so easy to lift a verse of Scripture out of its context and actually make it mean the contrary of what is really spoken of. Now, I'm going to read it all together now. Verses 7 and 8. I'm reading. And I will shake all nations, and the desire of all nations shall come, and I will fill this house with glory, saith the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine, and the gold is mine, saith the Lord of hosts. All right, what is the desire of all nations? Well, it's silver and gold. That's the desire of all nations. And many nations have had to go off of the gold standard in the minute that they did It rocked the economic situation and foundation of the entire world when that takes place. Why? Because there is still a desire for gold and silver. Now, when the first temple was built, anywhere from $5 to $20 million of precious metals and gold and jewels was in that temple. It was very valuable, and it would look, if you read the historical record in Kings and Chronicles, as if Solomon cornered the gold market of that day. And instead of having all the gold and wherever it is today, I think it slipped out of the cave up here in Kentucky, and it's probably scattered around. Maybe Russia has part of it. I don't know, but we don't seem to have too much of it. But that's the desire of all nations. Now, Solomon had that, and that was used in decorating the first temple, Now, that has all been taken away. You remember, the ambassadors of Babylon came up in Hezekiah's reign, and they were shown around. And believe me, they made a note of that. And when they got back, they told Nebuchadnezzar where all the gold was. It was up there, and Hezekiah had most of it. So that was the reason that this man Nebuchadnezzar was anxious to make a visit up there. It enabled him to get the gold, and it was moved then to Babylon. Now, when they rebuilt the temple, Zerubbabel's temple, as this one is called, there was no gold to put on it and no silver on it. And that was the thing that some of these people were complaining about. You remember many of them that had seen the first temple, they wept because, in contrast, this temple Didn't seem to be very much. In fact, it was nothing as compared to the other. Someone has written a lovely little poem on this, and I think probably this is the proper place to pass it on to you. Because you remember when they put it up that feast day, the people began to shout. The young did, but the old folk had seen the first temple, and they began to weep, you see. Now, here is the poem. Mid-blended shouts of joy and grief were laid the stones whereon the exiles' hopes were based. Then foes conspired, the king's courage retraced, his throne against the enterprise arrayed, and now self-seeking apathy invade all hearts. The pulse grows faint, the will unbraced. They rear their houses, let God's house lie waste so heaven from dew and earth from fruit are stayed. There comes swift messenger from higher court, with rugged message of divine import. Your ways consider, be ye strong and build, with greater glory shall this house be filled. He touched their conscience, and their spirits stirred, to nerve their hands for work their loins regird. And so these people, you see, are told that there's to be a greater glory than that of silver and of gold. And God says in the last days, you can be sure of one thing, that the temple will be redecorated in a very wonderful way. He says, the glory of this latter house shall be greater than of the former, saith the Lord of hosts. And in this place will I give peace, saith the Lord of hosts. Now, I want to change several things here that we might understand. First of all, the silver and gold is mine, saith the Lord. And there'll be plenty of it to adorn God's house. And I think the millennial temple is going to be a thing of beauty, by the way. Quite remarkable. And what he's saying here, it's not the glory of this latter house But he says, the latter glory of this house, which means the series of houses, he looks at as one. And that millennial temple, the latter glory of this house, will be greater than the former. It'll be greater than Solomon's even, and certainly greater than the one that they were building. And in this place, that is, in that temple area, God says, "...will I give peace, saith the Lord of hosts." Now, let me put it like this. In that temple area, and I've never been to Jerusalem that I didn't go to the temple area, although I've seen it nearly a dozen times. I still like to go there. Do you know why? That will accomplish what the United Nations in New York's been trying to do, and the League of Nations tried to do. That's going to bring peace on the earth. When Jesus Christ comes to this earth, his feet will touch the Mount of Olives, and when he enters that temple area, then peace is coming to this earth, for he is the Prince of Peace. And that's the peace that he will bring at that time. Now, the peace that he's talking of here means finally that. I think it could mean, because when he came the first time, He came to bring peace to men of goodwill, that is, men who are rightly related to God. They know their sins are forgiven, and as Paul put it in Romans 5, 1, therefore being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And then there is a peace for the Christian's heart today, a peace that passeth all understanding. And he came the first time to bring that kind of peace. But my friend, he's coming to bring world peace, the kind of peace that this world wants and needs today. And so what we have here, the desire of all nations is not Christ. The proper word is the treasures of all nations. The treasures of all nations. And the thing is that, They're going to be brought in that day in the building of the millennial temple. And therefore, this looks forward to the final days when the millennial kingdom is established here on earth. And they were to see that present temple with the perspective of the ultimate purpose of God. Now, that's the way we should look at present circumstances today and your circumstances, and my circumstances. Look at them in light of eternity. Look at them in the light of God's purpose for you, my beloved. If God be for us, who can be against us? Hallelujah. (laughs) My, let's not be overwhelmed by the circumstances of the moment. Let's not be overcome by that. Now, when he says here in verse 8, "...the silver is mine and the gold is mine," that makes it very clear that he was speaking of material treasures. And he's not speaking here of Christ being the desire of all nations. But the glory of the latter house are better still the latter glory of this house. And that will be the glory when Christ enters it. In other words... God looks upon these series of temples as one house. Oh, that you and I might see circumstances like that. I think of that Scotch preacher who turned in his resignation at the end of the year, and the elders ask him why. And he says, well, we just haven't had any conversions this year except we, Bobby Moffat." May I say to you, that poor preacher couldn't see that we, Bobby Moffat, was the greatest work that that man ever did. For we, Bobby Moffat, was Robert Moffat, the great missionary to Africa who probably did as much, if not more, than David Livingston in opening Africa to Christian missions. That preacher didn't see that in the light of the future. And you and I today need to recognize that We need to see things in the light of God's plan and purpose for our life. Now, friends, we come to the 10th verse of the 2nd chapter of Haggai. And if you found your place there, well, we'll get underway. Now, this is the 4th message that he's given. We come now to what we labeled a 4th message, and it's an appeal to the law. And we have here the explanation of the principle, and that's from verse 10 through 19, by the way. Now, this is a great passage of Scripture we're coming to. Let me read. In the four and twentieth day of the ninth month in the second year. Now, the last one was given in the seventh month, the twentieth day, and that was on a feast day, 520. Now, this actually is on December the 24th. Five hundred and twenty, and this is the message now that we have, and it's geared in to secular history, not sacred history. It's geared in to a Gentile ruler, and not one of the kings of Israel or Judah, because there's none on the throne at this time, and therefore, the times of the Gentiles definitely has come. Now, let me read all the verse, verse ten. In the four-and-twentieth day of the ninth month, in the second year of Darius, came the word of the Lord by Haggai the prophet, saying, Thus saith the Lord of hosts, Ask now the priests concerning the law, saying, If one bear holy flesh in the skirt of his garment, and with his skirt do touch bread, or pottage, or wine, or oil, or any food, Shall it be holy? And the priest answered and said, No. Then said Haggai, if one that is unclean by dead body, touch any of these, shall it be unclean? And the priest answered and said, It shall be unclean. Now, the matter that is before us is this, that on the 24th of December, in the year 520 B.C., Haggai went to the priests, and he asked two questions, and putting it very simply, it was this: If that which is holy touches that which is unholy, will it make the unholy holy? And the answer is no. The other part of the question is: If that which is unclean touch that which is clean are holy? Will the unclean make the holy, and the clean unclean and unholy? And the answer is yes. That's what it'll do. Now, that's the two questions that are before us. Now, let's get the background for this, because, very frankly, this is the very important thing. There are many, actually, phases and facets of the everyday, workaday world in Israel which was not covered in detail by the Mosaic law. In other words, there were certain involved situations and there were certain naughty and thorny problems that arose in their daily life and it became more complex because there was nothing specific given in the law that would adequately cover it. And the question is, how did Israel function under the law when there was no specific law to govern a given situation? And the answer is given in the Word of God. Even before Moses' death, there was a case in point. And I won't turn to it today, but you'll find it back in the 27th chapter of the book of Numbers. And it concerns Zelophehad's daughters. Now, you see the Mosaic law, had said that when a man die, his son shall inherit. Well, it said nothing about the daughters. And you can see that they needed a woman's lib movement there. And Zelophehad, had, he didn't have any sons, but he had a house full of girl. He had a regular girl's dormitory. And when he died, there was nothing in the Mosaic Law. So Zaloped's daughters, and they started this women's lib movement. They went over to Moses. They said, look here. What about it? The law says that sons are the inheritance, and our father didn't have any sons. We're all a bunch of gals. What about it? Moses said, I'll have to consult the Lord on this. Well, you can see that Moses wasn't too enthusiastic about the women's lib movement. He's a real male chauvinist, I guess. And so... He went and consulted the Lord. It's quite interesting. The Lord was on the side of the girls. You can see he went in for equal rights for women. And he said, well, certainly. It was generic when I gave it to you. When I said the sons, I meant either sons or daughters. And therefore, the daughters of Zelophehad, they speak rightly. And there was now a provision that the girls would inherit. And they did. That was taken care of. Now, God made adequate provision for just dealings under the law. And the way it was to be done was this. And I'll have to go to the Mosaic law because it provided for this kind of a situation that we find Haggai engaged in. He's to go to the priests and ask them for a law because there's nothing in the Mosaic law about it. Yet it dealt with certain situations on these two questions. And so over in the 17th chapter of the book of Deuteronomy, verse 8, and I want to read verses 8 and 9. Now listen to this very carefully. If there arise a matter too hard for thee in judgment, between blood and blood, between plea and plea, and between stroke and stroke, being matters of controversy within thy gates, then shalt thou arise, get thee up into the place which the Lord thy God shall choose, and thou shalt come unto the priests, the Levites, and unto the judge that shall be in those days, and inquire, and they shall show thee the sentence of judgment. And this was the procedure. Now notice verse 10. Thou shalt do according to the sentence. Now, go up and ask the priest, here's something arisen. It's not specifically dealt with in the Mosaic law. What are we to do? Well, thou shalt do according to the sentence. Now, whatever the priests decide, they're the supreme court, they'll let you know. Which they of that place, which the Lord shall choose, shall show thee, "...and thou shalt observe to do according to all that they inform thee." And verse 11, "...according to the sentence of the law, which they shall teach thee, and according to the judgment which they shall tell thee, thou shalt do, thou shalt not decline from the sentence which they shall show thee to the right hand, nor to the left." Now, the thought here is, this becomes now the law from now on in specific cases deal with the same issue, of course. Now, that would be God's method. Now, actually, I think we have that method today. When I was a young fellow working in the bank, I thought I would be in the business world at that time. That's before the Lord called me. And I took a course in commercial law. And I don't remember much of what I learned But one of the things that I recall was there's a difference between what is known as statute law and common law. Now, statute law is law that's passed by legislatures. It's passed by Congress. And when a certain bill passes, that becomes statute law. It's that which is passed and written down. And there's sure a lot of statute laws that have been passed. I doubt what anybody would ever know all of those. Then there's what is known as common law. In other words, here is a matter brought before a court, and the lawyer for each side, they look for cases that have been tried before because there's nothing on the statute books that covers this specific case. So they say in the case of John Doe versus Mary Rowe, Why, it was decided years ago by Judge Know-It-All in Washington that it was to be done this way. And therefore, they use what is known then as common law. That is, decisions that have been handed down by courts. So that we actually have two kinds of law today in that sense. Statute law and the common law. Now, Israel had the same thing. Every specific thing was not covered in the Mosaic law. Great principles were put down, of course. In other words, the priests were to know the Old Testament. Then they would go up when something arose, not covered specifically, and get a decision from them. Now, I suppose that in the course of their history, that many occasions must have arisen when recourse was made to this part of the law. And... Many years elapsed, though, before we are given a scriptural example. In other words, you have to come here to the post-captivity period, and it had already been 70 years in Babylon, and a small remnant was returned. They were discouraged, and God raised up three prophets to encourage the people. These men were altogether different, as we're going to see. But Haggai was very practical. So God sent him to the priests. Now he says, I want you to go up and ask concerning two questions that are not specifically covered. And the background of this is just simply this. You see, when they first returned, there was this enthusiasm to build. But after 15 years and the debris of Jerusalem and the enemies outside, why, they just did nothing about building the temple. And they consoled themselves because they had lost their esprit de koa. And they were sinking in complacency. And they were saying, it's not time to build. And Haggai spoke into this situation and encouraged them. And they began to build. And then lo and behold, some of the old timers who had seen the first temple, well, they began to weep because they said, this little temple's not worth anything. And so for three months, though, they worked. And now a mercenary spirit enters into them. They say, now you told us to go and work and build a temple and that God would bless us. Now we've obeyed, but God is not blessed. And so it's at this juncture that God sent Haggai to the priests with this twofold inquiry. It's actually one question with two facets to it. Now the first inquiry is this now we're taking them up specifically if one bear holy flesh in the skirt of his garment and with his skirt do touch bread or pottage or wine or oil or any food shall it be holy the priest answered and said no in other words what he's saying here holiness is not communicated by contact Holiness is not transmitted to unholiness by contact. Cleanliness is not transferred to uncleanliness just by the application of one clean thing against an unclean thing. In other words, holiness is non-communicable. You can't communicate it. A holy object does not convey virtue by a connection A holy person will not convey virtue to another person. Now, let's see the application of that. And I'll have to drop down to verse 17. God says, I smote you with blight and with mildew and with hail in all the labors of your hands, yet ye turn not to me, saith the Lord. God says that you actually didn't turn to God. They returned to the land, but they didn't return to God. They went through the ritual. They brought sacrifices now and expected God to bless them. So religion, you see, is not a salve that you can rub on the outside. And friends, you can swim in holy water and it wouldn't make you holy. You can go through a ritual and it's not going to change you. You can be baptized in water and held under till you drown. But that's not going to change you, friend. May I say to you that we put sometimes too much emphasis on that which is right. Now, don't misunderstand me. I think baptism is very important, very important. But you're not going to convey holiness with it. You're not going to change a man's heart by going through a ceremony. Now, let's look here at the second inquiry, verse 13. Then said Haggai, If one that is unclean by a dead body touch any of these, shall it be unclean? And the priest answered and said, It shall be unclean. Now, apparently, they didn't have specific word on this. And yet they should probably have known their law just a little bit better than this, because actually God had spoken on this. And I want to turn to, I think, a key passage back in Leviticus, the 22nd chapter, verses 4 through 6. Let me read this. What man soever of the seed of Aaron is a leper, or hath a running issue, he shall not eat of the holy things... "...until he be clean, and whoso toucheth anything that is unclean by the dead, or a man whose seed goeth from him, or whosoever toucheth any creeping thing whereby he may be made unclean, or a man of whom he may take uncleanness, whatsoever uncleanness he hath, the soul which hath touched any such shall be unclean until even, and shall not eat of the holy things." unless he washes flesh with water. Now, you see that there was apparently a law, but it only went for a day. And it's quite specific. They've now discovered that uncleanness is communicated, this second inquiry, that unholiness is transferable. Uncleanness is communicated to the clean. An evil heart cannot perform good deeds. A bitter fountain cannot give forth sweet waters. Grapes are not gathered from thorns. Figs do not come from thistle. There is a syllogism in philosophy. Many of you will recall it. You have a major premise, then you have a minor premise, and then a conclusion. Now the major premise is this, holiness is not communicated. The minor premise is unholiness is communicated. Now, what is the conclusion? When the holy and unholy come into contact, what happens? Both are unholy. The Lord Jesus says, Can the fig tree, my brethren, bear olive berries? As a man thinketh in his heart, So is he. An act, a ritual, a ceremony will not change the heart. A good deed actually is touched and tinctured and tarnished when an evil heart performs it. Now, this is a ceremonial law, but friends, it's applicable to every phase of life. It's like the law of gravitation, it's universal. Now, listen to this, and I'll have to come back to this. In the physical realm, that is the material, you can go in the chemistry lab. And when I preached on this in church, always had two great big beakers. One of them filled with clear water. One of them filled with the dirtiest water that black ink could make it. And what happened? I would pour some of the clean water in the unclean water, and I'd say, how long would you have to pour here to make it clean? The answer's clear. You never make it clear by just pouring clean water in on that dirty black stuff. But you put one drop of that black stuff in the clean and it makes it unclean. So in the material realm. Now in medical science, in therapeutics, how do you get measles and how do you cure it? Do you take a well boy and let him rub up against the boy's got measles and will that cure him? No, but I'll tell you what it'll do It'll give the clean boy without measles, it'll give him a good case of measles. That's the way it'll work out. Now, it works in the moral realm also. The material realm, the medical realm, and the moral realm. The liquor industry gives to charity. The racetrack has a day in which they give all the proceeds to charity. Hollywood produces biblical stories, and we'd applaud them. Well, you might. I'm not. May I say, my friend, that the liquor industry can't cover up the awful thing they're doing to human life by giving to charity. Why? Because when a clean thing and an unclean thing come together, the unclean always makes the clean unclean. That's the reason. And may I say to a lot of young people listen to this program... Young man, young woman, you can't run with the wrong crowd and stay clean. No, you can't. If you're running with an unclean crowd one of these days, you're going to find out it's going to rub off on you. Now, it works in the religious realm also. And this is a great principle that we need to recognize because a great many people think religion is a ritual. If you go through it, why, somehow or another, that actually is the thing that makes you acceptable to God because you've been through a ceremony. I have here something that an Episcopal bishop and a Roman Catholic bishop over in Colorado, and that was back in 1964. They met together, and they made this statement, Christian baptism is the basis of a union already existing, which must be developed to its natural conclusion. And the work of reuniting Christians is the work of God, and will be accomplished through the grace of God, no matter how difficult it may seem from a human standpoint. But baptism is the basis of a brotherhood which is truly Christian. And may I say to you, as anyone knows, their mode of baptism is by sprinkling... Just think you'd leave out the greatest number of Christians today, the Baptists and others who practice immersion. You would exclude most of the fundamentalists on that kind of a basis. Well, even the Baptists and the fundamentalists agree that baptism does not save you because they recognize this great principle that the condition of man is such that going through a ceremony or anything that he attempts to do externally, will not meet the conditions that God has put down for man. And after all, man's condition is a sad condition. We read in Jeremiah seventeen nine: The heart is deceitful above all things. And who can know it? What a picture this is of the human heart. No one can know how bad that it is. If you and I could see ourselves as God sees us, we couldn't stand ourselves. We don't realize how bad we really are. And the Lord Jesus made this abundantly clear. Over in the 15th chapter of the Gospel of Matthew, in verse 18, he said this, But those things which proceed out of the mouth come forth from the heart, and they defile a man. For out of the heart proceed evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witness, blasphemies. These are the things which defile a man, but to eat with unwashing hands defileth not a man. Just because you wash your hands or been through a ceremony or performed a ritual... That can never make you right with God, you see. I think I've told you about the man that I played golf with several years ago over in Tulsa. And he told me, he says, I was a church hypocrite for years. I was member of a big downtown liberal church. I'd been through the ceremonies. I'd been on every committee. And he says, to tell the truth, why... I was not saved. I was not a Christian. And during the week, I was practicing things that no Christian should. He says, I was a typical hypocrite. And he said, one day I found out I was a sinner and I needed a Savior. And he said, that's what transformed my life. You see, the heart must be changed. The Lord Jesus, again, listen to him as he talks along this line. Now in Matthew 7, verse 16 ye shall know them by their fruits. Do man gather grapes of thorns or figs of thistles? Even so, every good tree bringeth forth good fruit, but a corrupt tree bringeth forth evil fruit. You see, this is the principle at work. He goes on in verse 18, a good tree cannot bring forth evil fruit, neither can a corrupt tree bring forth good fruit. Every tree that bringeth not forth good fruit is hewn down and cast into the fire, wherefore by their fruits ye shall know them. You see, out of the heart proceed the issues of life. The heart must be changed. You remember the story, and Shakespeare had it right, by the way, in Macbeth. he Yes, Lady Macbeth, you remember that night walking in her sleep. As she looks at her little hand, she says, out damaged spot. All the perfumes of Arabia cannot make this little hand white. And how true. And all the perfumes of Arabia cannot make the heart right with God either, my friend. To try to go through these ceremonies and that is like taking a gallon of Chanel Number no. 5 perfume and putting it on a fertilizer pile out in the barnyard. My friend, you can't make it right and sweet by doing that sort of a thing. You remember Simon the apostle told Simon the sorcerer, thy heart is not right in the sight of God. Now, God demands a clean heart. In Ephesians 6, 6, he says, doing the will of God from the heart. And in Hebrews ten twenty two, let us draw near with a true heart. Now, how can a man's heart be made clean? That is, by nature, a heart that is unclean. By doing something, no. Sort of like the sign that a dry cleaner's had up in a certain city back east, I saw. It says, we clean everything but your reputation. Well, believe me, you can't get that cleaned up down here. Now, Proverbs asks the question, Proverbs 20, verse 9. Who can say, I've made my heart clean I'm pure from my sin. Well, God has a formula. God has a prescription. He says in Isaiah 1.18, Come now, let us reason together, saith the Lord. Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they be red like crimson, they shall be as wool. And Peter wrote in 1 Peter 1.18 and 19, For as much as ye were not redeemed with corruptible things as silver and gold from your vain conversation, received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish or spot, what can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Oh, my friend, here is stated one of the greatest principles. Now, God says... The reason that you haven't been blessed is because of the fact that you have been coming to me with unclean hands and hearts. And you thought that if you began to do something, that that would make what you did acceptable to me. Verse 14, I'm reading now. Then answered Haggai and said, So is this people. And so is this nation before me, saith the Lord. And so is every work of their hands, and that which they offer there is unclean. Why? They thought that with an unclean heart they could do something for God, and that would make everything right. No, it did not. It really meant that what they did was unclean. That's the reason that an unsaved person can do nothing. That is acceptable to God. Now, verse 15. And he says, And now I pray you, consider from this day and upward, from before a stone was laid upon a stone in the temple of the Lord. In other words, he says, Now, from this day on, I'm going to bless you. But up to this time, I haven't been able to. He says, Since those days were, when one came to a heap of twenty measures, there were but ten. When one came to the wine vat, To draw out fifty vessels out of the press, there was but twenty. I smote you, God said, with blight and with mildew and with hail in all the labors of your hands. Yet ye turn not to me, saith the Lord. You see, their heart hadn't turned to God. Now they've turned to God. And God says, consider now from this day and upward, from the four and twentieth day of the ninth month, Even from the day that the foundation of the Lord's temple was laid, consider it. Is the seed yet in the barn? Yea, as yet the vine and the fig tree and the pomegranate and the olive tree have not brought forth. But from this day will I bless you. God said now that your heart is right before me, I'll bless you. But the reason you haven't been blessed... Though you've been doing things, you see they've rebuilt the temple. And they are now going through all the services of the temple. My God says, that doesn't change you at all. In fact, when I sent you into captivity, you were going through all the services of the temple, but your heart was not right. Friends, may I say to you that one of the ways that you can make your church a good church That is, if you have a Bible-teaching preacher, you can make it a good church if you, when you go there on Sunday morning, are prayed up and confessed up and repented up and cleaned up. Then you won't block any blessing that might come in the church that day. Because remember, when the unclean touches the clean, the thing that happens is the clean becomes unclean So your heart has to be right before God. This is tremendous. I know of nothing that is greater than this. Now, will you note as we come to verse 20, here is the expectation for the future. And again, the word of the Lord came unto Haggai in the four and twentieth day of the month. This is the same day, December the 24th. Now, I said this at the beginning, that... The reason, probably, that we had two messages on December the 24th was because, Haggie I wanted to go home for Christmas. And he just gave two messages. Now, you know, some people took me seriously on that. I had somebody that spent a little time writing me about a 10-page letter explaining that they weren't celebrating Christmas at that time. And somebody said they ought never to celebrate Christmas. My, how I've been straightened out on it. My friend, when I don't have an answer for anything, I generally become a little facetious. And very frankly, I recognize all of that. The reason that he gave two messages on December 24th, now if you'll not let anybody else in on this, don't want this word to get out, I don't know why that we have two messages given on this particular day. But here we have them. Now we are told, and again the word of the Lord came unto Haggai in the four and twentieth day of the month. Verse 21, speak to Zerubbabel. Now this is a message to the civil ruler, the man in the line of David. And this is a promise made to him. Note, this is important. Speak to Zerubbabel, governor of Judah, saying, I will shake the heavens and the earth, and I will overthrow the throne of kingdoms. And I will destroy the strength of the kingdoms of the nations. And I will overthrow the chariots. And those who ride in them and the horses and their riders shall come down, everyone, by the sword of his brother. God will shake all nations. In other words, he's going to overthrow them. All nations. The thing they've trusted in, they did in that day, was in chariots. Today it's the atom bomb. God says, I'm going to remove all of that. Now, verse 23 In that day, saith the Lord of hosts, will I take thee, O Zerubbabel, my servant, the son of Shealtiel, saith the Lord, and I will make thee as a signet. Now, the signet is a mark, an identification of royal blood and royal reign. And Zerubbabel is in the line of David, for I have chosen thee, saith the Lord of hosts. Now, the Messiah will not only come through David, he's going to come through Zerubbabel. And the interesting thing is, if you'll read the genealogy of the Lord Jesus, in both the Gospel of Matthew chapter 1, Gospel of Luke chapter 3, you will find that both David and Zerubbabel are in both genealogies. That's interesting. By the way, God made this promise good And in that day, now that looks forward to the day when the Lord Jesus will come at the end of the great tribulation period. And he intends to put this line of Zerubbabel, the line of David, and to be specific, the Lord Jesus Christ will put him on the throne of this universe, for he is King of kings and he's Lord of lords and he's coming to this earth to rule. This little book puts Christ in his place as the moral ruler, the civil ruler, the king to rule over this earth someday. May I say to you, this is a very important little book, as you can see. And so that little shotgun-built temple, not very impressive in that day, it's very important because... It is in the line that's leading to the coming of the Messiah when he'll come into that temple someday. Who's going to tell who's doing the great work and who's doing the small work? That Sunday school class you have may be far more important than this broadcast or any other work that's being done today for God, my friend. Only God can tell the importance of it. Let's be found faithful, and then let's work. That's what this little book says. Next time we go to a little prophecy, a little bigger than this, of Zechariah. Until then, may God richly bless you, my beloved.